0: Hello and welcome everyone to episode number 70 at the Indie Football Podcast. And as you might have noticed by the team scarf that I'm wearing and the half quash that <laughs> has worn, today we have special Liverpool dignitary. Not to say it is only limited, Liverpool is limited to what he has done throughout his life. Introducing Peter Moore, former CEO of Liverpool FC. His journey spans the tech industry with roles at Microsoft and Electronic Arts, showcasing a unique blend of corporate leadership and passion for football. Thank you, Peter, for taking out the time. And As Anukar said, LinkedIn has finally served us in some of the <laughs> other ways. How are, you, uh, how are you feeling today?
1: Feeling good. It's morning here. I'm in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, the sun's shining. It's, I don't know, 74 degrees Fahrenheit, so about 23 Celsius which isn't too bad for the last week of November. And uh, the Reds are playing well. So we're uh, we're excited yeah. about uh, December. I think we have nine games to play in December. And, uh, you know, it's going to be an exciting period. So we're coming off, obviously, as we record this, the, the Manchester City game, which was tense. But I think all of us probably would have taken a draw going into it. And that's what yeah. we got. Um, and so uh, it sets up the second half of the season really, really well.
0: Yeah, if there's any uh, Arsenal fan watching, I just remember at the result of this match, someone posted City won, Liverpool won, but the result is that Arsenal won that match because they were the most. Uh, they were the team that benefited That's- the most. But Anukar sir, I think uh, as you say that we keep having lots of Liverpool people around, but having Peter Moore is almost like taking the level one notch higher, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, that is the stuff of dreams for both of us. Like, you and I have been doing this for the last 22 months. And, of course, having Peter here means a lot. And one more reason uh, Peter really wanted you on the podcast is that in India also, there's a football game. It's called FIFA. Now, uh, you are definitely aware of that. (laughs) Now, uh, when you had served as, you know, uh, uh, someone who was heading at, at EA Sports, like you must have gone through a lot of obstacles, right, with the game and like the game has is something which has like defined a generation. Like everyone from every game which I have personally played from FIFA 98 to the recent uh, to FIFA 23, I would say even for that matter, it has left a mark on me. And like everyone talks about it, even the ones who do not play football, who, who even the ones who cannot uh, who are not very good athletically, love playing because they know that. They can control the Mohamed Salahs of the game. They can control the Sadio managers of the game. So while working there, what lessons did you learn? It how did you use them, uh, in the gaming industry to redefine, to defi- to you know, kind of uh, mm-hmm. leave such a mark with uh, EA Sports in the fe- uh, in such games?
1: Well, I think what was going on. I joined EA in in 2007, so 16 years ago. As president of EA Sports and during that time, uh, FIFA and Pro Evo Soccer, the Konami game, were, were kind of nose to nose. It was at times a 50-50 market share. And we at EA invested heavily in, in technology and I think equally importantly in licenses because I think the authenticity of the game is really what started to set us apart from our competition. And when I say licenses, I mean hundreds of licenses, leagues, clubs, federations, yeah referees, balls, you name it. And then on top of that, uh, doing independent deals with clubs and, and and of course the Premier League and Bundesliga uh, exclusively. And I think this gave us a level of authenticity. And what I do in reflection now take pride on is the way that we have introduced football to tens of millions of young men and women throughout the world who, to your point, maybe not the best at kicking a ball, but fell in love with the game and learned about the game and started to really enjoy the game, both virtually and in real life through the game, formerly known as FIFA. Now, of course, EA Sports FC. So yes, I mean, we created what is now a worldwide phenomenon as regards a video game in every metric you want to apply against it, revenue, engagement, impact. But I think all, and even FIFA, in their headquarters in Zurich, who I would visit on a regular basis, will acknowledge that we did the game of football an immense favor by investing as heavily as we did, not just in the simulation of the game, but everything that surrounds the game, the passion, the emotion, the songs, the crowds, the stadiums, um, even going into the journey of a player from academy to maybe putting out on loan to finally making the first team, all of that has been integrated in the game uh, over the past, to your point, 25 years and so um, it's with great pride that I reflect back on what the team in Vancouver, British Columbia was able to do not just for
0: EA but for the game of football, period. That's quite interesting and I feel it is worth diving a bit deeper into this. You mentioned about your experience throughout uh, developing this. Uh, how did you navigate the challenges of overseeing the development of sports games and probably what are some of the innovations that made you most proud during your tenure there?
1: Well, I think the key, first of all, we had a great development team. Um, You know, I'm not writing code. I'm not dictating the physics or the audio. My team in uh, Vancouver did a superb job, not just in raising the level of our game, but as often the case when you're in a competitive environment, raising all games who needed to compete with the game formerly known as FIFA during that period of time. Um but what I think we did in in the later years is understood that it just wasn't about playing a 90 minute simulation of a football match. This was about everything that we love about football. And you know to the point I just made the passion, the emotion, it's not just once or twice a week 90 minutes. We all live and breathe it for 24 seven. And Absolutely. This week is a good example. Today, Champions League games, tomorrow, Champions League games, Thursday, yeah. Europa League games, all of which keeps us on this kind of hamster wheel of passion, <laughs> joy, anguish um, that we love yeah. about football. <laughs> and so that's that's what we wanted to, if you will, capture within that game. And it, again, it wasn't just the simulation of the game itself. So everything that we invested in providing this entire ecosystem of football. Uh, In the later years, we we did something called the Journey, which took a young player um, and it it took him from the academy and you had to play him through all the way through the youth teams and then, you know, get out on loan, maybe make a first-team appearance, but then be sent out on loan. So this journey that that modern footballers have, we wanted to replicate. Um, And again, I think the bottom line is, what we were able to do is elevate the game, not just the video game, the game of football, educate tens, if not hundreds of millions of young football fans over the decades, help FIFA with a little bit of a PR uh, <laughs> that they actually needed during that period of time. Um, and I think change the way we think about sports video games um, as we are here, not just not just football, but basketball and hockey and American football, UFC, all the get golf, all the games that we're so used to playing and enjoying. I think what FIFA did, um, uh, you know, was set the gold standard for how a game should be built, how you should experience that game. It, it also became a live service, not just a game. And and that was the real key when you added ultimate team, um, probably 12, 13 years ago now, and you were able to create your own team. Um, from the best clubs in the world. And that created an interesting environment. At first, it was, wait, you're going to break the licenses? A Manchester United player can play for a team wearing Barcelona uniforms? This doesn't feel right. But I think very quickly we were able to, if you will, educate the clubs, the leagues, the federations, that this is what people wanted. They were playing fantasy football But instead of it just being pick a team and let the real players get it, you were in control with the controller. And so I think what we've been able to do, uh, whilst I was at EA and my team takes all the credit as they should for this, um, is reimagine sports video games from 20 years of just playing the game, if you will, to the last 10 or 15 years of playing the game checking your phone, looking at the tournaments, eSports became a big deal, Um, getting involved in um, collecting players and and having to pick your own, quote unquote, ultimate team. I think that became the real game changer, um, pardon the pun, but that's where I think uh, when I look back, I, I take the most pride with what our team was able to do.
2: That is actually a very uh, beautiful way of encapsulating things because honestly, I think FIFA as a game, like uh, EA Sports, like of course led by EA Sports, it taught us a lot. Also, because like I would uh, be honest with you, like for me, for someone like me growing up in India, I had access to watching Liverpool play, but when I could actually see that there were so many leagues in the world, that there were so many players, and there were some talents which you actually discovered through FIFA only who actually became stars, like, uh, I would be honest, was a player who actually fell uh, later in his career. But Alexander Pato was some player who was a fan-favorite for many at AC e. Milan because he was young, he could strike the ball at another level. And, like, we became a lot more knowledgeable when it came to football as kids, I guess, because of it. Uh, but, like, uh, coming to my favorite part from here, Peter, I'll slightly digress here. So. Uh, from 2017 to 2020, you were CEO at Liverpool and whenever any big transfer came in, whenever any big deal came, uh, deal came in, your name was always mentioned by the big uh, organizations that you had gone on for certain negotiations to negotiate a deal. 2017 was the year Mohamed Salah came in and Liverpool was consistently in the Champions League, winning the Premier League, the Champions League. So, being through that time, over, uh, how... Uh, What changes did you bring at a CEO level? And uh, how did you feel that the culture uh, uh, shift at Liverpool helped them to win almost anything and everything in the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, the credit for for signing players needs to go to the sporting director and and his team and the scouts and and their ability to identify, uh, both with their eyes and with data, um, the players that we needed to create by 2019, what I think was the best team in the world at that, that yeah. juncture. Um, my focus was on the business uh, of Liverpool Football Club and running the business and letting Jurgen and his team focus on, on delivering wins, which they did week after week after week. Uh, and to your point, we ultimately became champions of everything and everywhere. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was really, I, I, you know, in reflection now that I have left and, and think back in those days, I focused on on four C's. I focused on community, very important, in, in, in a club like Liverpool and a city like Liverpool, uh, and, and global fan base, probably unlike no other. I focused on commercial because that was very important in supporting the commercial team who are incredibly talented um, and were chasing very quickly the Manchester United's and the Manchester cities of this world and have done enormously well uh, even since my departure in continuing to bring in real top quality sponsorship deals that match any other club in the world. I focused on civic, uh, understanding the importance of what Liverpool Football Club meant to Merseyside and, and, and in fact, you know, England and in fact the world. Um, and so having good civic relationships because of the importance of the club, and what it meant to that city was very, very critical uh, to our success. And then finally, culture, and then building a culture within the club that was focused on supporting the 11 players who that happened to be at that moment in time uh, on the pitch. Um, and during, you know, the non-glamorous work during the week of making sure the club and the team were positioned for success, which doesn't come easy, but. Um, there are 800 people that work for Liverpool Football Club that work outside of kicking a ball. And on game day, we have about two and a half thousand people that are their focus is bringing a world class stadium experience to the 54 soon to be 61,000 fans that attend home mm-hmm. games at Anfield. So that was my my real focus. And, and that over the three years, I think we achieved great success in all of those
2: does uh, like uh, we had we have uh, had fsg as owners for uh, more for the best part of more than a decade now and uh, for me like as an indian football fan i think they have done a fairly decent job but when you compare to the uh, uh, say the roman Ebrahimo, which is of the world or the places of the world there's a uh, um, la- there's a vast lack in terms of the investment that comes in the club every year like the club has been kind of told to be Within the and they have done a great job. I'm not denying that. But as the CEO at that point of time, did you face certain challenges when it came to, uh, you know, kind of uh, being able to uh, fulfill uh, when it came to uh, competing with the Uniteds and the Chelseas when it came to the commercial side of the game?
1: Well, you know, they are a great ownership group, but they're very clear that they're going to compete in a fair fashion that the club, uh, for the best part, needs to be self-sustaining, that there will not be the kind of money that you're talking about. And I will say this, um, you know, having a lot of money and investing a lot in the playing squad does not guarantee success. You mentioned two teams, Chelsea and Manchester United. (laughs) If you look at the table today, uh, those clubs, neither of those clubs are in the top four. And, And that's critical for the ongoing financial success of a club that, has aspirations to be top clubs in Europe, if not the world, to at least be in the top four of the league so you have Champions League spots. So from that perspective, um, investment comes in many different colours. Investment in the core infrastructure, of what the football club is all about, the stadium, uh, the training facility, everything that we have been able to do to provide a first-class experience for our playing and coaching staff, as well as for our fans, that investment uh, is important. And there are clubs that the two I mentioned probably wish they had our stadium at this point from the perspective of, you know, we're only a few weeks away from opening the upper tier of Anfield Road. And that brings us up to 61,000 in a stadium that has constantly been updated over the last decade since FSG took control of the club. So investment comes, as I say, in many different colors, very different structures and, and and very different objectives depending on the club not to say that the club is and and the ownership is not invested heavily in the squad but i think they've invested smartly as well if you look at the um acquisitions of of, of this last summer in particular mcallister and sober you know you've yeah. got best midfielders in the world right now at a time when you know the fan base was screaming out for a brand new midfield well you know yeah. uh, we we went out the club went out and, and identified these players and, and you know, paid handsomely, of course, but not to the level that some other clubs are paying for midfielders who I would say after this first period of the season have not shone as brightly in particular as Sobislai. So um, investment is an interesting word, and, and it's not just buying players for top dollar. It's looking at the entire ecosystem of that football club and what does it need to do to support its its fan base, its staff, its players, all of whom come together uh, to drive success on the pitch. Uh,
0: I would like to butt in over here and share an incident from when I had uh, gone to uh, London in September. So, uh, Peter, I just completed my Sports Management Masters from a college in in Mumbai that has a lot of focus on football. And they have their own affiliations with the Premier League, with certain clubs like Chelsea. So we were fortunate enough to go to the Chelsea Football Club Stadium, the Stamford Bridge. And uh, the tour guide being very honest in uh, serving this job as 40 years taking care of the venue, he, he very candidly mentioned that the current capacity of 40,000 at the Stamford Bridge is far below from all the competitors of Chelsea. And uh, when, he, uh, he, when he shared further plans, suppose Chelsea, the important people on the Chelsea board, when they sit down and discuss the five-year plan for the club going ahead, most of them would either suggest uh, some kind of a redevelopment of the stadium. Of course, it has its own limitations with high limitations, with certain other rules and regulations of the surrounding. But they might also consider moving to another place if it comes to that so uh, very true and very valid points made when it comes to what kind of investments and how certain teams even though they have all the money in the world aren't quite making the right noises uh, another direction that I wanted our conversation to steer towards is uh, your time with Rexham. you had served them as an advisor and I would say, Wrexham currently are is the team that has the most number of eyeballs for a team that's not in the Premier League. Here, even in India, you know, when the documentary came out last season, everyone, even people who were not so much interested in 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 football, uh, just because it was Ran Reynolds going in and the entire like the first step was Ran Reynolds, and then as you go through the documentary and you see so many different kind of reasons that Wrexham. Needed that kind of a push that they eventually got from the investments, so it was quite special for the people even here in India. So, I mean, what we want to ask you is, what motivated you to take this role, and what do you envision for the future of that club?
1: Well, I, I was born and bred in Liverpool, but my dad owned a pub, and we had the opportunity as a family to move to Wrexham when I was ten years of age, oh. and. Uh, and so I, we moved to Wrexham and not too far away. It's maybe, you know, a 40-minute drive from Liverpool on a bad day. Um, and uh, I grew up in my formative years, my teens, uh, in Wrexham and played for Wrexham schoolboys, played for Wrexham youth teams, played uh, in the Welsh National League right there um, and played for Gresford Athletic. And if you watch the documentary, uh, Gresford, the colliery and the yeah. mining team, it features very heavily and that's the village that i played for um for all throughout the 70s i was player manager of grasswood athletics so it's very near and dear to my heart and so rob mcelaney reached out once he um started to formulate this idea of buying a football club and and was told you know uh, peter moore has just moved back from liverpool and is in Santa Barbara, which is only an hour and a half from where he lives, and he drove to see me. Um, You know, he wanted me to go back and uh, take a senior role at Wrexham. It wasn't going to happen, but I said I'm very happy, as I was, to advise and do interviews and speak to all of my, my family still lives in Wrexham. Um, and do what I needed to do, get EA Sports uh, on a call so we could talk about getting Wrexham in the FIFA game, which we did, Um, negotiate with the university and and, and get that relationship going because they owned the stadium, which we did. And I spent most of my time doing interviews with the BBC and and, um, Bloomberg and over here in America, um, even some of the bigger media networks, Validating that these guys were for real, because there was a ton of skepticism that they were going to come in, uh, that they were going to do the documentary, make some money, make an even a bigger name for themselves, use it maybe as a platform for aviation gin or Mint Mobile, which they kind of did, um, and and then walk away. Well, nothing could have been as you've seen further from the truth. Not only are they, you know, engaged owners, they spend an inordinate amount of time going to Wrexham, which is not an easy place to go to. I can tell you. Um, and so it's, it's amazing to me. I grew up there. It's a sleepy town, as you can see, that's fallen on rough times. And so every episode I watch, I just smiled because that was my life growing up and nobody, nobody would take Wrexham seriously in the later years, because to your point, they had moved outside of uh, the top leagues. When I was, a teenager, if I wasn't playing, I would go watch Wrexham play. And probably have watched them play 200 times in that period oh. in uh, in the late 60s, in the bus- route, 70s. Yeah. So I would go to the race course all the time. It's only three miles from where I'd lived. Um, okay. I was playing a lot, so I didn't always have the opportunity. But I know the town. I know the club. I know its history. I know its potential. I know the people. And so um, I was able to provide advice, direction, council to, to Rob and then introductions uh, in particular EA got that all of that moving and I think give them some air cover here uh, particularly in the US but also over in in Wrexham with interviews you know Robert explained to me that during the height of lockdown in March and April of 2020, that he had was flicking through Netflix. He he and his uh, son are big FIFA players, so it's kind of a a little bit of a again the story we're saying kind of fell in love with soccer via playing the video FIFA. game. Yeah. You know, at least, yeah. That, yeah. and then saw a program which I don't know whether you get in in India called Sundal till I die.
0: Yes. Uh, no. That right? documentary
1: yeah. really really caught his eye and his heart and said this just. Reminds me of Philadelphia, where I grew up, where during the period I was growing up, our sports teams weren't very good, to say the least. Uh, A little different now. but um, And he had never met Ryan Reynolds. They had exchanged some messages. But together, they said, we can buy a football team and and do good. And and their, their entire focus is doing good for a community because they have the wherewithal to do so. And they could also raise as... Every corner of the earth that I go to now, I say Wrexham, people have seen it. And that's a little bit of the star power in particular of Orion Reynolds, not being disrespectful to Rob McElhaney. But, you know, it it is when you have owners like that, um, people pay attention. And it is this reflected star power that all of a sudden they start watching the documentary. And I think so many people around the world can watch that. think about their own lives growing up particularly in working class environments where sport was that release and you look forward to your football team playing on a weekend but if they were awful it depressed you and you add to that the 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 industrial decline and the commercial decline that wrexham was going through in the in the 90s and the early 2000s and, and you had a football team that wasn't delivering it for you on a saturday it was a double whammy and so what um, what they've been able to do is raise the morale and spirits of an entire community um, uh, through the purchase of the club, getting the club away from, uh, you know, pretty close to going bankrupt and then getting them back in the football league as they did last season and now playing very competitively in League Two. Was yeah, it,
2: uh, Mike, uh, I have a question here that uh, – Was it like uh, uh, when you were working with Ryan Reynolds also for that matter? Was it like life coming back a full circle when uh, you could see like uh, a club which had uh, kind of been like a boyhood club, seeing them do so well and become like a global face at this point of time? And uh, uh, how do you like uh, deal with uh, say someone like Ryan Reynolds who, uh, while he's a star in the U.S. Uh, in a country where they call it as soccer, <laughs> but uh, how do you uh, deal with uh, working with him and uh, how did he embrace the culture in the UK when it came to you know kind of investing and uh, being so much into Wrexham uh What is the whole perspective on the whole situation?
1: Well, it's a little bit of circle of life for me. I mean, Liverpool certainly was. I was born and bred there, and I but I when I went to Liverpool to live to do the job, I moved from the United States and. and and, and domiciled legally in the UK again. Um, It had been 50 plus years since I had left Liverpool. So I had to reacquaint myself with my hometown. I mean, look, I've been many, many, many times watching games, visiting my family, but I hadn't lived there since 1965. And so you you have to reacquaint yourself to your hometown in ways that visiting for two, three days and watching a football match was never going to do. Wrexham, very similar. To me, it was my life in the 70s before I moved to America, which was in 1981. Um, I I played a lot. I was going to university to be a physical education teacher. And my life was watch football, play football, learn to coach football. It was very much focused around football during that period of my life and my career um, as I went on to be a physical education teacher in a town not far outside of Wrexham. And so, again, when I watch it and and people will talk to me about Wrexham, I just smile because I can't get my head around how anybody outside of North Wales even knows Wrexham. And the people of Wrexham, I can tell you, just walk around with a smile on their face all day long because they cannot believe the global exposure that this has given them. And, again, for, for a town that has been... On really really rough times going back to the days of coal and steel um it is refreshing and, and uplifting to now see the the spring in the step of everybody there because they know that they're on a global stage
0: yeah that's quite special of course because sometimes I do wonder uh, as we keep talking about how Wrexham has been able to make a name for itself in the global map uh, it also Probably uh, strikes us people from India who kind of uh, try to football in India is, I would say, uh, something that you can't really summarize in two lines, or you know, you probably get into a long conversation with someone. Uh, And Peter, you must know that recently Arsene Wenger was here in India as in his capacity of FIFA's global development uh, stint, and he gave and he had told something that excited and interested everyone in India. You know, he mentioned how Indian football is a gold mine, uh, yet to be discovered. Uh, we just want to know more on your thoughts of what do you know about Indian football? What are certain things that you like, or you can be honest and say, what are certain things that you believe are contributing factors for India's not so fast progress in the sport, because there are many things that even we, just the two people over here who started a podcast and now we are a ten a team of 10 people who try to do things around football. So what is your overall perspective in Indian football?
1: The, the potential is huge. And obviously, let's get the C word out of the way. Cricket is, is yes. by far <laughs> the national sport, always has been, always will be for a lot of reasons. India uh, can dominate um, you know, at times, although it didn't quite work out in the World Cup recently.
2: But yeah,
1: but 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 you look at you look at the lesson that IPL taught us when this was announced a long time ago now, it seems like that that you know there is money to be put in India at the highest level of professional sport. Uh now the infrastructure and the stadiums are are focused on cricket, there's no doubt. And India can pull off hosting a world cup of cricket um you know one day um you know the, 20 years from now whatever there will be a bid from india to host a world cup uh in 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 india in the indian subcontinent and it may be that it has to be shared with somebody I, I don't know whether uh relationships with pakistan at that time would be enough to <laughs> need You know, you would need uh, Islamabad, Mumbai, New Delhi, Karachi, Lahore. I don't know. Uh, Let's imagine those cities are fully developed 20 years from now where they can, and the infrastructure and the ability to move people, millions of people around comfortably and efficiently from game to game. Um, It's not there yet, obviously. uh, But from the perspective of that's probably what it's going to take or somebody really believing in the game, to create the soccer version of the ipl uh in, in in india um i think would be the the thing that really accelerates the game it's still i mean you know for me every time i go to india and i've been many times and, and many many times to pakistan um you know it's it's cricket and bollywood and there's not much else that i can recall from the perspective of uh and, and all of the wonderful traditions and the heritage of. Indian culture but um a lot of it's going to depend you know can we get an Indian player uh playing at at European leagues and being as we're seeing now with for example South Korean players that that are really making an impact and that brings then reflected glory back to the country um and I think I think and, and people have talked about this with an Indian player for the longest time But somewhere, somehow, somewhere along the line, there will be a player that can play at that level. And, um, you know, I think then all of India will watch if they've got a young player that is playing for a Liverpool or a Chelsea or a Manchester United and playing in the first team. I think all of India tunes in to watch
2: that game.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah, Anukasa, please go ahead.
2: Yeah. uh... So, uh, very interesting uh, perspective you shared about India, especially like me and Doipan, we both have been dealing from the World Cup final just as of now. And we keep on talking about that in our conversations. So, anyway, uh, so uh, while I was trying to find your Instagram sometime back, uh, what I came across was the Peter Moore Foundation. Now, it has a lot of photos of you also. <laughs> I kind of really wanted to know, uh, sir, what exactly does the Peter Moore Foundation do? And uh, what uh, sort of change are you trying to bring to so that? I really wanted to know the specifics of it.
1: So when you go back to a city that you left 50 years prior and um, you see that city in all of its glory and Liverpool is a magnificent city um that has got amazing heritage uh in shipping and and one of the world's biggest seaports during the 1800s and and uh still has that infrastructure to this day it's a magnificent city with a special breed of people that live there and grown up there um and much of what i my success in my career I, I, you reflect back of how did I get here and, and why me and maybe not somebody else. And and you reflect back on your heritage and, and what growing up in a particular place or being around particular people or being fortunate to go to a particular school. All of that adds up to who you are and your success. And when my wife and I, and my wife's American, never lived in England, never lived outside of America, but we moved to Liverpool in april of 2017 it didn't take me long to get a real grasp on the challenges still to this day of growing up in the in the less fortunate and the more disadvantaged areas of liverpool and i owed it to those people and their dads and their granddads and grandmas that that, that were around when i was coming up um, to give back i've been lucky in life and part of that luck is my Liverpudlian personality that allowed me to be energetic and optimistic and, and front foot. And, and it's one of the things that um, helped me in my career. You know? And so where does that come from? Well, it comes from being a Scouser. It comes from being from Liverpool. Um, and so I felt I had an obligation to give back to the people that had helped me get there, or at least the descendants of the people that had helped me get there. And when you looked at it more closely, the power of football as a platform uh, was immense. And so the Peter Moore Foundation was founded and I funded it. I didn't fundraise. I just, my wife and I wrote all the checks for it. We focused on food banks. Food poverty is a real issue uh, in in Liverpool and many cities in the UK, unfortunately and tragically. Um, And so we worked with fans supporting food banks, which is an organization Uh, that is born and bred in Liverpool, that uh, collects bags of groceries before every home game, both at Anfield and Goodison Park. And so we we bought them a a vehicle, a a, a more top of the line vehicle than they currently had so that they they could move the food efficiently and redistribute it to the families in need. Cancer is a big deal, unfortunately, in Liverpool. 50% of people in Merseyside will be impacted by cancer. Um, in in their lifetime. And so the building of a new cancer hospital was something that we supported. Alder Children's Hospital, which has been a mainstay. And my mom was a nurse there from 1948 to 1952. And so we we funded treatment rooms there. So I could go on, but these are the core things that when you've been as fortunate as I have in life and you can look back what you need to do because you didn't do it all on your own um and look back at the people that put you on their shoulders well you owe them a debt of gratitude and the best way to do that is to reinvest in the city that gave birth to you and set you on your way and to look at the challenges that city and its people have and that's what we did and that's what the peter moore foundation was and still is all about
2: that's interesting before you proceed with this episode uh, is there any sound disturbance from your side
0: Okay. I'm all good. okay, yeah, I'm all good.
2: Yeah, okay, okay. Anyway, yeah, so i have to continue. Uh, so that is pretty interesting actually because honestly, I think uh, being able to contribute back uh, to the city where it all started actually must mean a lot to you. Uh, so Peter, coming into uh, more, I come back to Liverpool here. Uh, so like, uh, Michael Edwards. In, uh, especially in uh, uh, I don't mean this decency bias here but I think he has been one of the finest sporting directors we, uh, in our generation when it comes to global football so uh, what were the qualities while working with him that you saw which really differentiated him from the other sporting directors and how was he able to you know kind of uh, find those gems within uh, uh, global football who were at the right price also and who were able to make such a difference to the game.
1: So, so our sporting team, our sporting group, Michael Edwards, sporting director, uh, the, the uh, scouts, Dave Fallows, Barry Hunter, um, sports scientists, we have PhDs, Dr. Ian Graham, I mean, I could go on. Um, the combination of identifying exactly what you want in a player, what, what you're looking for, the ability to look at the database, if you will, well, these are the top 10 players we think for that position that we should look at very seriously. Looking at the data, what do you need from that player? Um, looking at the style of play that Liverpool plays, that anybody who plays at Liverpool has got to be involved in the press. As you know, you've got to work hard. You don't have teams where the centre forward just stands on the halfway line and waits for the ball to be up towards him. That just isn't what it is not
2: modern
1: And modern football, particularly Premier League football, demands all 11 players working off the ball at all times um, and, and not every player can do that not, not every great player can do that you know so what what Michael and his team were able to do was identify the players work of course with Jurgen Klopp and look at the needs and wants of the club tied into the formations and the structure and the style that the club wanted to play uh, on the pitch itself and this all came together incredibly well from the days of bringing in all the way back to a Jordan Henderson and then bringing in, um, you know, when Philip Coutinho left us uh, to, to go to Barcelona, utilizing those funds and immediately identifying both Allison and Virgil van Dijk as two players that you can build an entire team around as a goalkeeper That's and awesome. a centre-back. Obviously, Mohamed, um, you know, who at the time was at Roma and been able to um, identify him as having every attribute that we needed. Yeah. I will say all yeah. these players, they come in and they then need to be molded uh, by Jürgen and his coaching staff, Pep Linders, Pete you know, John Aktenberg and goalkeepers. And so it all they, these are not you know, off-the-shelf brilliant players that are ready to go in and, as Mo has done, score 200 goals in the Premier League. This requires work, chemistry, understanding what the manager wants, understanding the way that liverpool plays which is a little different than than probably most teams in the premier league and understanding you're going to work harder playing for liverpool than you probably have in your entire career um and from that perspective um it's no it, it's no surprise when players leave that in the most part maybe you could say luis suarez notwithstanding really don't don't flourish after they leave liverpool i mean certain players have obviously but for the most part they tend to flatten out the intensity the drive the passion everything that if you want to play for jürgen and you want to play for those people at anfield and the traveling fans um, you've got to be on the top of your game and and you go elsewhere maybe your motivation drops off a little bit your drive drops off a little bit you don't have the quality of coaching and um physio staff and medical staff to keep you on the pitch at, at full performance so that's where that's what it's all about coming in uh and that's what the sporting director and his team were able to do during that period
0: yeah I think that is something special that you share right there because we have always learned that in sports uh the results come from a group of people uh not and it very rarely is, is it a case where there's only one specific individual who can, of course, drive the course of a team for a particular time, but not in a sustainable way. Uh, as we move to the concluding parts of this episode, Peter, what I'd like to ask you is, and it is one of the questions that Anukash had for you when when we sat down at the beginning and wanted to uh, you know, uh, have all those questions ready for you. From gaming to football. How do you balance the business side of your career with your passion for sports, especially being involved with the football clubs that you have? Because, of course, sometimes there are things that you would want to do because you are a fan of the sport, while you also understand that uh, you being in positions like you have been there are a certain, there is a lot at stake and there is many parameters by which you are judged at your job. And for someone who has, Who has worked in football for so long how do you see roles also being the same or changing in the with the advent of technology are there any basic tenets that stay the same
1: well it's certainly you know i've never run a football club never mind the biggest football club in the world but but it's a business and Mm -hmm. and every business has if you will customers although i'm never going to call them customers they're obviously fans and multi-generational supporters you've got to take care of them you've got to give them Uh, You've got to meet their expectations wherever they are, wherever they are in the world. And and the thing that was very evident to me very quickly is the great majority, maybe as many as 99% of our hundreds of millions of fans, will never unfortunately get to Anfield to watch Liverpool play. So you've got to provide experiences and engagement with them that they feel like they're part of the team, part of the club, feel close to the club. And so... And we and and, and similar to, to video games, we, we built communities. We built in games during the 20 plus years that I was involved in gaming, it went from offline, it just you and your friend on the couch to millions of people playing online. And the need to build community and engage directly with the gamer was key. Um uh, you know, in my early years it was retailers who are customers, and we really didn't have a platform to be able to engage with our gamers and But online changed everything. And the same in football. You need to engage. And to your question, I I think throughout my career, I was able to use my fandom as a positive by being able to relate to the challenges that fans have, to empathize. You know, I've stood on the terraces where they are sitting down now, but I've been there and done that. And I've lived the journey that they are currently living. Sometimes. Uh, sometimes it got in the way my enthusiasm as a fan spilled over and I would you know once in a while you know post something that was purely from fandom and that was that was silly on my part and and, and not well thought out um, but yeah I think the the thing you have to do is is use your fandom use your heritage with the club or the company or whatever it is that there and, and use it to allow you to have a frame of mind by which you make a decision, not necessarily make the decision as a fan. Um, and for the most part, I think I was able to do that, but there were times where my fandom showed, um, not proud of that at times, and, and uh, <laughs> things were quickly deleted, but you get so involved. And, and, and the one thing I learned when you're there it's 24/7. There's no weekends off. There's no I'm going to take a break. There's no I, I'm going to go and have dinner in a restaurant tonight. Nobody is going to recognize me and want to come talk to me or give me a bad time because that happened every single time. Um, you know, um, I, I, and so you're always on, uh, always on. Particularly when you live in the city in the heart of the city in which the club is 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 performing. So, um, but yeah, there were times when. It was very much, why did you just say that or why did you tweet that or why did you put that post up? And, and uh, there was a couple of occasions where I probably overstepped the mark and quickly deleted, but my enthusiasm and my fervor, um, you know, uh, kind of took over for a few seconds.
2: That I can totally understand because I think being a Liverpool fan myself, like uh, we have a watch along group in which we have fans from different clubs. And there are times that when someone might say something derogatory about Liverpool, and I really have to control myself from not saying something or getting back because, like, I try to be as neutral as possible, like Doi Pine himself does that. Uh, But, like, Peter, uh, I'll come to you here. On LinkedIn, I have seen you uh, be a guest speaker in a lot of sports conferences being invited and doing a lot. Uh, so, after creating a legacy in the gaming in the football industry, what next for Peter? Move the map, and uh, in these sports conferences, what do we exactly try to achieve as a speaker?
1: Well, it, it's both sports and and video games. In the last thirty days, I've been uh, separate trips to Brussels uh to speak as a guest of the royal belgian football association on on my journey in football leadership and management and lessons learned uh, i then came back to california and a week later flew to amsterdam to speak about video games in the future and the heritage of where we've come from in video games and where video games as a 200 billion dollar industry is going next and looking at web3 and blockchain and um nfts potentially and and all of the ramifications of cryptocurrency and then last week i was in mexico city um, as a guest of egs the electronic game show and again when you reach my age and you've had all the great experiences you're almost obliged to to give back get on a plane go talk to people answer their questions make presentations and give them the benefit of history because people need to know how we got here um when i joined, for example video games it was offline it was maybe i don't know 10 billion dollar global industry and and here we are whatever that is 25 years later and it's a 200 billion dollar global industry fueled by online primarily sony and microsoft duking it out to the world's biggest corporations amazon netflix google apple all coming in and playing a role within games and understanding the power of games understanding the gen z coming through doesn't necessarily want to sit and watch television all night doesn't want to go to the movies they want to play games and they want to watch (laughs) their heroes their their you know on twitch streams or youtube they that's what they want to do they want to watch on demand and so um you know, the corporations have understood that gaming is the key to the generations that are now have money, have time, and certainly generations to come. And, you know, that's what, and I've seen that in my entire gaming career evolve from literally being boys in their bedrooms to where we are now with tens of millions of people playing online.
0: Yeah, that's, course a very big big part of even even in India I would say uh, having done this entire one-year course everyone does speak of the gaming industry the e-sports as a budding area but uh, I think uh, Peter this has been a great time and Anukar sir if you have something else to ask please do that because I'm sure after a while Peter might wonder how long are we going to keep him for well yeah
2: but
0: yeah,
1: this has been this has been great. The only thing I would add is, you know, my focus now here in Santa Barbara is founding and building a, a brand new professional football club for both men and women here in Santa Barbara to play in USL uh, in, in the spring of 2025. And that, again, giving back to a community that I've only lived in for a few years. But understanding the power of the game here, uh, it's a big soccer town here in Santa Barbara. It's never had a um, professional team for 30 plus years. And even when it did, uh, they weren't very successful, but it's different times here in America. And the game is exploding at every level, whether it's Welcome to Wrexham or Ted Lasso or Messi to Miami or, or the Premier League, every single game covered and every Champions League game is gonna be live in a couple of hours on American television. You know, And uh, in the 40 plus years I've lived here, the last five years have been amazing to watch the growth of the game, both men and women.
2: That is pretty interesting, Peter. And uh, before we end this episode, I have a question which has two which has two parts. So if you have to give a message for a 20-year-old Peter Muth, and if you have to give a message also for a 20-year-old who was wanting to become someone like you, what would be the separate messages you would give out to each of them?
1: Well, the thing I think you find in your life uh, and certainly for me, is is what you think you're going to set out to do, even when you're in university, even with your first job, is not necessarily where life is going to take you. And you've got to be prepared for all of those zigzags in life. I mean, I was always going to be a physical education teacher. That's what I wanted to be. That's what I'm trained to be. My bachelor's and my master's are in physical education. Um, I taught for a number of years and enjoyed it, but the opportunity to take a bit of a risk to come to america was posed to me just as a soccer coach and it was it was actually probably um a very i don't want to say dumb decision but it was like to give up a career uh, how old were
2: you how old were you at that point of
1: I, uh, when i came to america i was 26. um and yeah. I, I, I realized pretty quickly that coaching and playing wasn't going to get it done for me and um started selling soccer shoes uh, to retailers uh, in, in southern California and that's what I did I was a salesman and that teaches you a lot but your career will always take twists and turns and it's up to you a to take the risk when it presents itself and and, and go for it even if it's something that's a little different I mean what did, at 44 uh, I you know I've been working at Patrick shoes and then at reebok and the opportunity to joined the video game industry at 44 years of age, and I knew nothing about video games. But uh, being from Liverpool, you grasp things pretty quickly, and and uh, you fake it till you make it, and you jump in on these things and, and go. So my advice would be to people is, A, believe in yourself. Uh, that's critically important, because if you don't believe in yourself, why should anybody else? Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid yeah. of jumping in, holding your nose, and Jumping into uh, the water where you don't know how deep it is and you don't know where it's going to take you. I mean, that is always something uh, that I've never been afraid of doing. Uh, and, you know, what I've always been good at, and again, we liverpudlians are great at this, is talking myself into things and, um, you know, being the face and, 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 and the front man uh, for the companies that I've worked with because of, I think my personality and and probably my natural effervescence and um you know yeah. uh, ability to present uh like liverpoolians can do we believe in it we're, we're 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 we have a lot to say for ourselves and so um i've always embraced that that part of my personality and it's helped me enormously well in my career
0: i think that's deeply inspirational and that will help everyone out there irrespective of where they come from irrespective of which part of the world that they come from uh thank you peter for taking out the time i'm sure it is one of our most informative educational and enlightening episodes we look forward to staying in touch with you we at the indie football podcast do different kind of things we have our uh, instagram lives around various things we have our data segments and i'm sure someone as knowledgeable as you would probably love to sometime, probably even come over to India and meet us sometime. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everyone. Good night. My
1: pleasure, and, and thank you to all my friends there in India. I, I've been to Mumbai, New Delhi, Islamabad. I, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time there, and, and the same in Pakistan. So it's uh, always a wonderful place to visit, and I look forward to doing that in the future.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter, for your time.